Malcolm Honline is vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Fridays at this time for our weekly update. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. Good to speak to you there, especially. It's unbelievable. And, you know, I mean, I, I doubt you heard the beginning of the show, but we're sitting literally over the shook. We're on a, on a porch overlooking the area of Jerusalem that it seems every Jew comes to on Friday afternoon. I'm sure you've had the experience where <laughs> it seems the entire Jewish world is here. And uh, there's nothing like it. Look, I don't have to tell you, there's nothing like it. You, you said to me uh, years ago that your desire to be here permanently increases every time you're here. And now that I'm getting older, not to sound like the old man that I am, I understand what you mean by that. The more you come here, you, you, you can't shake this incredible uh, pull that this land and this state has uh, for, you know, a, a caring and, uh, and a spiritually uplifted Jew. And uh, it's just remarkable every time I'm here. It's, it's not only does it increase each time, but it should be the positive motivation. We have good reason to be concerned about our situations in the United States and around the world with the rise of anti-Semitism, the virulence of it, and other developments. But it's the positive pull that should be really the, the magnet drawing us there because you cannot live fulfilled completely as a Jew anywhere else. And that's why a lot of mitzvahs are only in Israel that people should should realize what a privilege it is and stop taking for granted. You see the threats against Israel and the the dangers that it faces. Don't take it for granted. We each have to do our part and sustain it, and no better way than by being there. While we were here, a new government was sworn in in the Knesset. You know, it's funny, and I said this earlier in the week, I, I just assume because of the somewhat comical... Um, negotiating procedure that we watched uh, happening in the Knesset, you know, over the last few weeks. I, I just assume that there's never been this many members of the cabinet because of the positions that were created to placate some of the partners that Prime Minister Netanyahu wanted to bring in. But someone printed out for me, and I and I just conjectured that in a Levi Eshkol or Golda Meir uh, administration of years ago, I just conjectured that there must have been, I don't know, six, seven, eight cabinet members. Someone printed out for me, yeah, someone printed out for me the list of Eshkol's cabinet. I mean, forget about, for a moment, forget about the deputy ministers, but you had you had a good 18, 20 ministers even in his administration. So uh, do we even know what the total number is now? A lot. <laughs> exactly. And, uh... But could it be 30 to 40? Like, could it be in that range? Well, 30, many of the governments reached 30, 29, 28 in the past, and it's because of the nature of coalition governments that different people, uh, so many people need to be placated. And what they did in this case is to give people multiple assignments. I think Derry has interior and health and deputy prime minister. Others have, uh, are they, they balkanize some of the ministries, like the Ministry of Education, uh, various functions from them have been allocated to other ministries. You have uh, a number of them that have responsibilities in the communications type areas. And of course, is with the farm ministry, you have a farm minister for a year, then somebody else for two years, then the other one comes back for a year. You know what I compared that to, by the way, Malcolm? I compared that to the old pickup games where we would play basketball. Whoever got first choice, the next guy would get two and three. That's what it sounds like, frankly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but, but, you know, for the workers there, it's not in the farm ministry. It's a little bit disconcerting that, you know, that the guy who's coming in, whatever he says, will hold for a year. 
Right. You know, know that though there's continuity generally in, in foreign policy, also the likelihood that the U.S.-Israel relations will go to Dermer, Ron Dermer, former right. ambassador of Israel to the United States, who is now minister of strategic affairs in the prime minister's office. Right. That is not a, a, a departure. The ministry of strategic affairs was in the prime minister's office in the past. Then, then it was disbanded after a number of years, and its functions largely given to the foreign ministry and its budget, which include a lot of money, especially dealing with Hasbara and BDS and things like that. And now it will be rebuilt in the prime minister's office under uh, Ron Dermer, who is very capable. So it'll be very interesting to see how all of this functions. You know, you have a lot of ca- talented people. You have people we've known for many years, Gallant, the new defense minister, uh, Ellie Cohen, the foreign minister, and certainly Katz, uh, the alternate foreign minister, the um, speaker of the Knesset, Ohana. These are all people we've known, Miri Regan, uh, Avi Dichter. And these are not radicals and, you know, the, the, the depictions. It's not, it's no longer is it right-wing. It's not only far right-wing, if you listen to the media, but the far, far right-wing extremist uh, gov- most extreme government ever in Israel's history. Yeah. And unfortunately, some Israelis and officials are using these these uh, terms, which to the American has no idea of the nuance of it, yeah. and they just pick up this message. I thought Smotrich's piece in the Wall Street Journal was very important in uh, laying out that, that the accusations about the changes. It, 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 first of all, Netanyahu is going to control the process and certainly the legislative initiatives. And second, he's not going to let them enact these crazy things. They didn't do it in his other 37 governments that he led, and they're not going to do it this time. But people don't realize that, or they don't want to realize it? And with what They you- don't want to realize Of course, this is a way to attack. Yeah. And many in the United States, unfortunately, jump on this bandwagon. They have something to say. Say to the prime minister, why do you have to publish it as public de- declarations if you're sincere and you really want to to raise a concern? There are plenty of ways to do it. The the publishing these the declarations and getting hundreds of rabbis or others to sign. It's not hard to get hundreds of rabbis to sign something. You can do it on the left, on the right. Everybody can just line up people. But the question is, what what is the goal? And if the goal is to have an impact, then you have much more credibility by having people, as have been has been done, express their uh, the the concerns that they have and the fears that they have. And you have also reactions. You know, the court was a very activist court, for instance, Supreme Court. And we want to protect it as an independent agency. I think everybody wants that. But also you don't want it where it overrules the other uh, parties and government. And for those who need some evidence, based on what you're saying regarding how the media is treating this, New York Times headline, Israel's hardline government takes office. There are many other ways it could have described this in a headline. Testing bonds with allies. I don't even know if that's true because you basically have said over the last few weeks that even the new Netanyahu government would likely not have you know any you know any severe new challenges with allies of Israel at this point. But of course, the New York Times doesn't see it that way. And then, of course, they uh, they make sure to go out of their way to highlight the fact that there were protests and rallies against the new Israeli government as it was sworn in yesterday, or I should say on Wednesday. 
And they bring up issues, frankly, and I understand that there are protesters who are concerned about different things, but, you know, there's nothing, honestly, there's nothing about this government, and I think you were alluding to this just a few minutes ago, there's nothing about this government that would tell us that they wouldn't protect those who need to be protected, those who have laws that, you know, protect them as a community, etc., and, and all, all these other social causes. You know, they just assume because somebody is a right-winger or is aligning with, quote-unquote, political right-wingers, that all of a sudden, you know, people are going to be discriminated against. There's absolutely zero evidence of that. And I understand people are rallying against it, but the Times, of course, uses it as their headline. Well, there are a basis for some concerns that uh, for those who advocate in particular issues because of things that have been said in the past. If people look, some of those things were said 10 years ago or more uh, by some of the people. And and the, uh, the truth is that I think many of them should not talk so much publicly right, right. now that they should first get into power power imposes responsibility. Once you're responsible for an agency and the, that your words really have consequences and your decisions impact the state, they, people tend to be much more responsible, not just in Israel, everywhere. And, you know, there are ideological positions and it's legitimate to have differences of view and people express those those views. I would prefer that the members of the cabinet and, and the government also not make public statements and first get down to the important work right. of establishing agencies and getting things done. Israel, right. you know, has inflation. Israel has a lot of the other problems that we face. Certain Iran, you see the, the agenda the prime minister put forward. It's a very serious one. But by the way, Israel's economy came in as the fourth uh, the strongest this year. And the number one was, um, was uh, Greece, believe it or not, you know, with all of the problems that Greece, uh, and it, it managed this year to reduce the net. Malcolm, are you there? Hello? Oh, there we go. Malcolm, are you there? I'm here. All right. The last point. I you were, I, yeah, I apologize. I don't know what's going on, frankly. The gremlins have gotten us again. Uh, the last point you were making was about Greece. Could you just repeat what that was? I was just saying that, you know, with all the bad news, that when they mentioned the OECD uh, put out the uh, best performing economies in the world, Greece actually ended up being number one this year, mm-hmm. and a lot of it, you know, they, they attribute to the improvement that they made. But Israel was in the top four. So despite all the economic conditions, the, the uh, inflation there, which is like everywhere else, uh, a serious matter. There's still so many good things that uh, have come out. The Aliyah this year was very strong, even 4,000 from North America. There are those the positive stories will never get any attention these days. We're dealing, you know, in a in a very uh, difficult time in the Middle East and elsewhere. In- you know, it's funny because I'm here in Jerusalem and you know the area that I'm in and all the construction is, you know, you always describe it and it's exactly as you describe it. And, and, and you know, someone commented to me yesterday, they're trying to make Jerusalem into Tel Aviv and they meant it as a compliment, meaning they're trying to make it into a real metropolis with the, with the high rises and everything. And, you know, obviously we get concerned, especially on the religious end, that it loses some of its spiritual charm. But it is amazing what's going on here. Number four in the world, as you just said, in that category is just is simply remarkable. People need to see this. A lot of people are going to be traveling in January to Israel. People will see it with their own eyes the transformation in the holy city of Jerusalem and obviously what's happening in the rest of the country. Now, Eshkol, uh, because we referred earlier to Levi Eshkol, the prime minister, he had, um, he had the prime ministership and his minister of defense was... Levi Eshkol, which is not unusual, of course. Now, I honestly just, I just don't know because I haven't seen the current list. Is Prime Minister Netanyahu the defense minister as well? No, 
the defense minister is General Gallant. Oh. And uh, who was, has been a minister for many years. He was a, a senior member of the IDF. Are you surprised uh, that he didn't keep the portfolio? Or that's, that's you know, not unusual? No. First of all, he needed to give out the portfolios because he had so many people to satisfy. And, of right. course, there are many who are not happy because they didn't get, I mean, there's a limit to how many you can, people you can give jobs to. Right. And some didn't get the jobs they wanted. And when you have to satisfy, you know, three, four other uh, parties, and each of them has maximum leverage because he can't afford to lose uh, a block of, uh, of seats. Uh, and uh, and what the exact total is, we don't know, but we certainly don't want more cabinet members or the same number of cabinet members as we have members of Knesset, and sometimes it seems that we're going in that direction, frankly. All right, so new government is established. Uh, it's interesting to see the Jerusalem Post that the first thing that they write about today is that the next challenge is keeping the coalition together. I mean, Malcolm, I would have to assume, as a real outside observer from thousands of miles away generally, and I'm sure our listeners feel the same way in the U.S., you know, when, when you hear about the mandates and, you know, how different this election was in the previous four, that keeping the coalition together is not really a challenge, or are we wrong? Is it going to be a challenge keeping it together? It's not going to be so much of a challenge because these people want to be in the government. The uh, religious parties have their agendas. The uh, small church and Ben Gvir and others will have their agenda. Uh, and within Likud, you have the vast differences. But they also know that if, if they uh, force the government to fall, they could very well not win the next election or right. not be in the next government, even if they win. So I would say that there, there's uh, a, a lot of reason why this government could, could hang together. I think Netanyahu has learned a lot of lessons from, from the past and will uh, apply those in his governance now. But he, he will be in control. Last week we talked about what's happening in Iran. We're always looking at the perspective of the protesters and what they're trying to accomplish. And you said that, that you told us last week that you think they're, they're making headway. And now we learn about the and, – and you also told us about the, uh, the soccer team that went to the World Cup. And now some of those families were threatened. And now there was a New York Times headline that, in fact, uh, Iranians' soccer great's family is being targeted after he supports the protest. First of all, for any public, we have to understand that for any public figure, celebrity, sports star, etc., who's actually getting out there and supporting the protest, that is a very, very significant development in a place like Iran. And I'm wondering, as we discussed last week, are we getting toward a tipping point where there's so many high-profile people that are on the side of the protesters that it could make a real difference? So the answer is, I think you were reaching uh, more and more advanced stages with the opposition, that they've been able to sustain this now into four months, that the numbers who participate continue to grow, and every time they carry out another execution, as they have, and with minimal, uh, although some protests from the West, from the Europeans and, and others, um, that the uh, when you have but you have seven hundred thousand besieges, you have all of these radical uh, forces that they can array. Uh, they they are still in control, but it's the collapse of the economy, it's the internal dissension. There are um, more and more pressures being brought to bear, as you see with the the breakdown of the talks. That even those who were strong advocates of the talks uh, are not. Right right now, one of the saving graces for them has been the relationship with Russia, which is growing more and more into a military alliance between them. They they give uh, sell drones to Russia to use in Ukraine, and Russia is talking about selling them Sukhoi jets. Um, as you know, Iran's air force is very old and decrepit. 
but the, the infusion of new Russian jets would, would make a difference. And, of course, they take the money out of the mouths of the people right. where inflation is, is so desperately high. And if Russia really wants Iranian drones, it sounds like there's a trade possibility there. Yeah, but the drones turn out not to be so good. Yesterday there were 64 um, drones fired at, at Ukraine, and they took down 50-some of them. And the, uh, the the Iranian drones are very big and clunky. It doesn't mean they're not effective. They can hit the, the power station. So if they shoot 105, get through, 10, get through, that that's enough for, for what they want. But you see the the, uh, the tensions that – and Iran has to look at some of the other agendas, Erdogan's agenda in, in Syria, for instance. There was a meeting in Russia between the defense minister and intelligence chief of Turkey with their counterparts from Syria this week in Moscow. No mention of this, but it could be so significant. And, you know, Turkey is thinking of an invasion – in, in Syria. So if they start working out a relationship and they work cooperatively against the PKK and others, that could be a game changer. You have on all the borders, the Armenian, Azeri, Iranian, Turkey borders, you have troops, you have uh, potential clashes. The the um, And remember that Erdogan was the biggest supporter of the armed rebellion against Assad, hoping to, to bring him down. So all the pieces are in flux uh, Right now, and, and Turkey obviously said they would go into the Kurdish areas and have been held off for now. But the the um, it, it would be a, a fight for for land that's already been largely destroyed. <clears throat> so the, uh, the 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 situation, all of the pieces are in flux right now. We saw Oman, you know, adopting more strict boycott legislation against Israel. It hasn't been finalized, but it will be. And that they would have penalties, criminal penalties, not only for attempting to business Israel, but even for having private conversations with Israelis. So the you know we have a, a situation, and the the amazing thing to me is the you know the number of executions by Iran increased by about eighty percent last year, and this is a report from Iranian human rights uh, organizations that monitor this very carefully. Where, where is the the outrage that? Uh, almost 600 people were executed, many of them publicly. Where's the balance that to the reports, you know, that Israel, uh, if somebody gets killed in a, in a clash, and then there, you know, the whole world, the UN, even sometimes administration officials, others come down on them uh, like a ton of bricks. It's, you know, it's really a, a crumped world, as they say. <laughs> And the United Nations, as you just said, not a word. And American newspapers, very, very little, although to their credit, to some of them, you, you do see the stories somewhere at some times, but so little attention to it. Um, all right, we, we, we only have a couple of minutes to go here because we got to get back to our fundraiser. But there are listeners, rightfully, who are so curious about your opinion of the Zelensky visit to Washington. What could we say from your perspective about that visit? Who, who's visit? Zelensky. Oh, Zelensky. Um, well, it accomplished the purpose he wanted, which was that he got all the attention and pledges of more and more aid. I, I hope people know where the money is really going, that somebody in the U.S. government is monitoring the billion, tens of billions of dollars. Um, I think there's overwhelming support for it in Congress, and nobody's going to stand up against it because it's not only a battle. They, they framed it very smartly as a battle for democracy and a battle against Russian Russia and more importantly Putin, who has become uh, 
everybody's favorite person to hate and to uh, and and for good reason. I mean, the tragedies of this war are are very serious, but the um, uh, so I think that overall he he may not get the missiles that he wants, but he'll get some stuff. And you know, the, the, I think the missiles are often symbolic. Because like the Iron Dome, which is not appropriate for 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 the Ukrainian war front, let alone taking a year to train people, and it would take many months to train people on the American Patriot system. Um, that that I think it's a, it's there's a symbolism to it as well, and the, uh, the one of the few things in which there's a consensus, by the way, in the new government is about Iran and the potential need to um, take let's say escalated steps. Uh, against Iran, didn't it and become an, across didn't, the board? Didn't it become an issue in the, in that Knesset session on Wednesday? I thought I thought it became, an, or was this a minority that was uh, that because the prime minister yeah, the, uh, Lapid has spoken out, Gantz has spoken out, the outgoing government, the incoming government, and they 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 have done assessments to see what things Israel would need to be able to have the full range of options uh, to respond to. Uh, to the threat that Iran, because it's moving closer and closer to the enrichment levels, that the breakout time is shrinking. There is There are reports that there's still negotiations on JCPOA. The president said there aren't. Uh, others in the government have told me that there aren't ongoing, but it doesn't mean that there aren't contacts, So that they, because there are still a lot of people who advocate for the, the, the JCPOA deal. But Right now, I think it's very unlikely. I don't think there's any basis on which they could have negotiations with Iran while they're executing people, while the demonstrations, all the human rights issues, let alone the threats and its alliance with uh, with Russia and involvement against the Ukraine uh, in the Ukraine. And on the Zelensky piece, it's a, an example of uh, how benefit how beneficial over asking can be. The guy shot for the stars, right? He was—I mean—he wanted everything from the, from the economic aid to the missiles to any type of defense system, as you described. And because, again, whether you call it sympathy, whether you call it strategy—I don't know what's going on in Washington, frankly, when it comes to this—but whatever you want to call it, uh, he certainly got a a good a good percentage of what he was asking for. Well, he's getting a huge amount of money, and they—you know—the humanitarian needs are obviously very great. But I hope that there is control because, you know, when you start throwing around tens of billions, you invite corruption and all sorts of uh, misdirection of funds. And so, I hope, but the United States, as I understand it, is giving the money for specific projects, not right. just generally allocated. Although, even in that regard, when you're talking about such big numbers, the numbers the president uh, gave were very generous, to yeah. say the least. And, and, uh, and your suspicions, you know, are, are justified because you've seen what, what you've seen internationally, not just forget about the Ukraine. You've seen God knows in how many other situations where the money either gets wasted or directed to the wrong source or is even being used for the purpose they say it's supposed to be used for. But in reality, it's not really being used for that purpose. Ladies and gentlemen of this precious audience, ladies and gentlemen, we're in the final hour of our fundraiser for this year. And if you like these segments, you know, Malcolm and I have spoken almost every Friday on the air for over 21 years. So And before that, Malcolm was on on a regular basis, just not at a specific time. But now it's Fridays at 740, and Malcolm actually hears that from people, Friday 740 or Friday 745, whatever it might be. I guess from the Israelis, he hears Friday at 245, whatever. So please, keep us going, and we'll get back to our full weekly update, Bezrat Hashem, next week. But please keep us going, fjbunity.org, fjbunity.org, and we'll get an update on our numbers 
in just a moment. And Malcolm, I, th- I especially thank you for your patience. Not quite sure what happened with the technical situation here today, but I thank you. And I thank you for doing this every single week and for providing, for providing such a service. Because frankly, the majority of the stuff we speak about every single week, nobody else is talking about. That is true. And it's, uh, you know, people ask me why every Friday doing this, because it's, we want to stimulate people to talk about this at Shabbos at the yep. table with their kids. Yep. And we want them to educate. We have a generation growing up who does not know. We have to know the dangers and the things that we've talked about. And Nahum, you don't thank me for this service. We are all indebted to you for this. You, you know, you, you're the one who has to get up at 3 in the morning or 4 in the morning. <laughs> I only have to get up. Unless I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> and and the, the impact, you know, the, uh, there's an Israeli reporter, one of my favorite Israeli reporters, who, who listens every Friday, and he will send me emails afterwards asking me about certain points. And then the next week it appears, and we want that to happen. Yep. We, I mean, there are other uh, journalists and others who tell me that they listen every Friday, uh, rabbis who tell me that they write their sermons, you know, they infuse the messages into the sermons. Wow. So you, the outreach and the impact is beyond what most people realize, and I hope that they will show Akar Satov appreciation by supporting this really vital institution. I appreciate that, Malcolm, very, very much. And we should continue to do this from strength to strength every single week. Thank oh you so much, and have a wonderful Shabbos. And from Jerusalem, Good Shabbos. have a wonderful Shabbos. Usually Malcolm is wishing us a wonderful Shabbos from Jerusalem. Today I get to turn the tables in a good way and uh, wish him and everybody a wonderful Shabbos from Jerusalem. J.M. in the A.M., Rabbi Yudin coming up. He's also in Israel. And Rabbi Yudin based on the reports we've gotten, is thrilled. Not that he wouldn't be thrilled at anything having to do with our family. He's always been such an important part of our simchas. In fact, he just had a bracha under the chuppah at Yonina's wedding. Uh, but Rabbi Yudin is particularly thrilled with the latest news because... Um, oh, Malcolm, are you still there? I'm here. I got. I can't believe I never I never wished you a mazel tov, because <laughs> you always take the Siegel uh, simchas personally. As it, and, and not even a joke, by the way. You should see the way Malcolm and his wonderful wife celebrated with us at, at Yonina's wedding. It was like a literally a, a, an aunt and uncle who were standing there enjoying the the celebration. Well, I have great news, and that's that Yoshua Siegel on Tuesday got engaged to uh, Tamima Pilachowski of Mitzpah Yericho, Aliza and Uri Pilachowski's daughter, and Malcolm. I don't know where you're going to be for Pesach, but right around that holiday, there'll be a wedding here in Israel, and it would be amazing if you would share a simcha with us again. Well, I don't think I've missed many simchas in the Siegel family. You have not. I tend to miss them, but uh, first of all, Mazel Tov, I, I think Uri has been in the press recently, right? Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. If, uh, as I recall. Sure. And uh, you should only continue to make simchot. Uh, I also neglected to say it, but I, I intended to. And the 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 other wedding, you're right. I I felt like it was a family affair. I think most of the people there felt that, and uh, you know I watched it like that, like I would watch uh, my own relatives. It was married. just it was wonderful, and it was just great. And look, and and by the way, it's not the biggest stretch that you'd be in Israel Pesach time. So hopefully, we'll have a chance to celebrate again. It's a pretty big stretch. Oh really? Oh sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to be there in oh, two weeks. Then did I'm it? Gonna, and then right. the whole month of February, and right. then twice in March. But you did, did. What happened? You already announced the Pesach program. You did, right? I don't. You did or did not? I'm, I'm, uh, I don't announce Pesach. I don't do the Pesach programs anymore. Oh, I didn't know with that. my family, and we do uh, Orlando. All right. Well, enjoy, and we'll be thinking of you. And I we'll do I know, it from there. And I know you'll be thinking of us. I appreciate that. 
Malcolm Holmline, Vice Chairman, Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. No joke, by the way. He and his wife were there like an aunt and uncle. And then afterwards, when I had the opportunity to um, to speak to Malcolm about the event, about the wedding, he was just, you know, elated with so much amazing pride about the entire event. It was great. So I thank him. 